Hello. Hello. What is this? Nine? Nine, yes. I don't know how to count. It is por- <laughs> it's por- episode nine. Episode Welcome. nine. And joke's on you guys, because we're recording in person again. Yay! Yay! Because, <laughs> yeah. Because we have the time. Because we have the, well, do we really have the time? Because I should be packing. But no, here we are. But it's worth it. And Anna's here. She's back. It's Gucci. Here to weigh in on things. Um, so basically, yeah, we, we don't have any questions from people other than the foreigners that ask us, how are you? And then try to follow Ellie and I on our personal Instagram accounts. We're good still. We're how, st- how do you feel for a seal? I feel, I feel missing for a seal. How do you feel? I feel good for a seal. Good for a seal. Good. I feel good for a seal. Awesome. Yeah. So this is following up the Eric Hoyt interview this time. Oh, yeah. That one is good. Um, I like that he says that we need to manage people and not whales because that's the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we definitely need to have more people like him who are out researching management because I think, you know, a lot of people don't want to study the management side of things because it's yeah. complicated and, you know, the human side of conservation is, is the most important because we're the ones causing the problems. But, you know, he's out there doing good work, you know, getting this research because we can't make effective choices um, if we're not, if we don't have, a, like, a scientifically sound um, baseline for that, basically. Right. Um, but so I definitely thought that was good. We need to listen to more people like him. We need to have more people like him. But he's done a lot of work with a lot of different kind of animals. So, you know... It's, yeah, I thought that that interview went very whale. Very whale. Very whale. Whale, whale, whale. <laughs> what do you think? You were there. I was we there. We had technological difficulties, dogs barking. We love that. Thank you, Peaches. It sounded like it was a good interview. And I, I definitely agree with you. Like, if, if these issues are man-made or human-caused, like, we need to focus the, the studies on, like, what, we're, what the humans are willing to do, like, what adaptive management approaches we can use to better both enabling us Mm -hmm. to conserve and then also just outright conserve yeah and just like find out what is what's actually going to work versus what's not yeah um but yeah like research-based solutions instead of just trying the same thing a hundred times and then being confused and acting confused when it doesn't work yeah it's literally the definition of insanity yeah exactly um, yeah, so cool. From a research perspective, I think a big problem too is that a lot of people aren't all that willing to bridge that gap between the research and the and the everyday person. You know, yeah, it's that's the struggle. I think it's a cultural thing too of like partially the people who are not in the research thing. From what I have gathered based on who I've interacted with, it's just like they feel into peaches hush. They feel intimidated or they like it's it's un reachable it's not accessible for some reason like it's unrelatable content i guess or not necessarily content but like i don't know like it's easy to get intimidated when somebody's like i live breathe dolphins constantly but also you know um I don't know. We just need to make it to a place where it's more approachable, where that information is accessible, because a lot of people don't know where to find a good scientific article, and that's not their fault. We live in a culture that, um, you know, basically just feeds people crap, and then, like, 
you know, scientific articles you have to pay for and things like that. Like, that's stupid. Absolutely. I remember I, it took me quite a while to figure out how to properly get a scientific article. It wasn't covered in my college classes. I think I was like, when I was in a full on class aimed towards getting you ready for grad school, that they even were like, oh yeah, here's how to properly use Google Scholar. You know, but everyone else was, you know, kind of just looking around on Google. It took, like, I remember there are some people who were like, what? You mean Wikipedia is not a good source, you know? And it can Which be... Which is insane. Yeah. It, it can be really tricky, too, because whenever I was doing research, you try to explain it to somebody, and you could just see their eyes glaze over. So it has to be a certain level of approachability to it. Absolutely. But. I do think, I do think, kind of piggybacking on that, I think I was taught that you don't use Wikipedia articles themselves. You go to Wikipedia to look for... Um, the articles because if you build a good Wikipedia article mm-hmm. you're going to have the um, the sources the citations at the bottom and you look at those when you do that so I do think there should be a little bit of a balance because Wikipedia has good overview mm-hmm. um, I've run into like I've gotten yelled at by like a guy online about like sourcing my shit from Wikipedia when we're just having like a normal like everyday conversation so I think there's a fine, fine balance there um, but absolutely I think yeah, it would be great if there was some sort of science Wikipedia that was, like, verified, but also really did make things approachable to a common person. But there really isn't anything between Wikipedia and PubMed where, you know, yeah. they're not even, they're telling you, like, the entire structural name of a compound, not like, oh, yeah, this is this, you find it here, and it treats this. You know, there's yeah. a big gap there. I think um, Deborah Giles does a good job on her um, website, because that's kind of what her goal is, at least with this specific thing. And obviously, you know, we need to make all fields of science more accessible to all people because, you know, it's unrealistic to expect people to make um, scientifically based or evidence-based decisions when they don't have access to that evidence. But also, I think, you know, just a baseline for things that we need to teach people in school is, like, how to find a good scientific article. But, like, what um, makes a scientific study valid? Like, you know, how many participants you need, if it's like a human-based study or, you know, the longevity of the study or just different types of studies because there are a lot of different kinds of studies out there and, you know, there's some really sound science and there's some really wacky science and, you know, so I think, you know, that should just be a baseline sort of knowledge thing too. We should do an episode on that. We should just like talk to, I think I have a professor in mind who I took a class, basically literally an entire class that was on like how to find scientific articles, what constitutes a good study, et cetera. Yeah. But we could try to talk with her and get like a yeah a thing. I, I when I was in college, we also I had a professor who briefly mentioned Carl Sagan, and Carl Sagan's got like this ten ten point list of all the things that you need to look at in order to. And I don't remember all the things on it, but it's basically like who funded the 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 research like again how big is it how many times has it been repeated like things like that like he's got this like bullshit meter basically it's it's not that that's not what it's called but yeah. i can't remember the word it's like malarkey or something like that mm-hmm. yeah something. you can't i do also want to bring up too this is something that i found um there's a lot of discrimination in science this mean is probably not as relevant to like this particular field of study but a lot of times there are articles um written by people in foreign languages who go to try to translate it into English and it's really sound science but it gets overlooked because their English isn't proper and you know we should be able to overlook the language barrier and get down to the root of things not necessarily write something off and be like oh this can't be good because it wasn't written in you know proper English like it's not easy to to 
um, know two languages, let alone translate science over to it. Anyways, considering that, like, you know, most Americans who, who, like, your everyday person who speak English struggle to get through scientific articles. Yeah. I struggle to get through scientific articles that are not related to my field of interest, you know? I don't know what they're talking about. So we need to figure out how to how to dial that down. Like, obviously, I get that we need to be able to describe things, like, as accurately as possible, but there's got to be some fine line yeah. or some kind of way to, to bridge that gap. And right now, it's amazing how much you see in society where, you know... <clears throat> You'll see uh, an ad, and it's like, oh, yeah, based on this, this has, you know, a 50% efficacy. And, like, I sometimes when I'm bored enough, I'll track down the studies to see, and they all have, like, a sample size of nine, which is, you know, absolutely pointless statistically. Or um, one of my favorites, too, is in medicine. There's a big thing where there's a certain length of study time for side effects for medicine. Mm -hmm. And quite a few of them, though, do have side effects outside of that time range. Oh, And so, for example, I was on a medication that within within the clinical trial range did not cause weight loss. But if you tracked someone, because I believe it was like eight months or something, but Mm -hmm. if you tracked them for two years, there was almost 100% weight gain in that study. Mm, And so they could say, like, safely and shiny on their nice little pamphlets that, no, it wouldn't cause weight gain like some other medicines. It did, though. It just wasn't within the time frame. So there's certainly things that people need to look at and that are usually kind of overlooked. You know, a trial size of nine is not enough to say anything about anything. You know, and the time frame, my master's research was between one and two years, depending on parts of the research I was doing. And, like, it gave a window, but it did not give a full look into the problems that we were facing in that particular study. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's, I think, why we need to make that more accessible to people. But, like, you know, it's really oppressive to to keep informationally sound documents from the general public. And it's not even like the scientists are getting that money. Like, no, it's the public. It's the publishers, yeah. and which is stupid. And, like... Yeah. I, yeah. Especially I, now that we're in the age of, du- of digital publishing, you know, and you don't have to print, print as many copies. There's not as much physical resources that you require. I mean, you still have editors and stuff, but you're not cranking out nearly as many copies. Almost everyone's getting them online these days. Yeah. A lot of those costs, you know, are still there for reasons that don't make quite as much sense. Right. Yep. Um, I think the other problem is if we could, it would be really cool if we could make some sort of, you know, mid-range like between the scientist and the and the common man scientific you know forum but it would be really tricky to keep that going and not have it adulterated by somebody who you know like you would need money you would need editors and stuff and it'd be really easy to sneak in like people from companies who are like oh we'll like help pay for it but we get say in what's you know what's what's getting published we get to read it we get to so you'd have to really be careful about keeping that scientific objectivity Mm -hmm. while keeping that going on a level like a shiny pretty level that the public could access yeah be really cool though i would love that yeah that would be ideal or if there was a way to like you know for scientists to publish like their articles online somewhere for free but i'm sure there's some kind of weird legality between publishing things and i mean obviously we want it to be peer-reviewed but it would be nice to have like there's no reason why that should cost money like there's plenty of government funding to do the things that we need to do to make this world a better place it's just it's allocated all Terribly, I feel like you know. And if I remember correctly, I had I when I was trying to publish papers, I had to put in money to get them published too. Sure. So they're kind of taking from both ends. ends. Yeah, a lot of a lot of places will ask you for like an editing fee or something. Like they'll actually ask you for money to submit a paper for publication. I mean, I I can understand because like you know they're it's 
like they have to put work in, but at the same time, if they like if they are then going to sell your work, like that's stupid. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense if they're going to sell your work and then charge people a bunch of money. But also, it's so stupid too because most of the people that are like trying to access these articles are student not most but I mean yeah I guess most because there's more students than there are professors I think just generally speaking but like Mm -hmm. you know most of these people are students who don't necessarily always have money and it's like they don't have a ton of excess money because they're students you know and at least for now the nice thing about that is most universities have subscriptions to all of those services so if you log in from like a library you can get those articles for free and download them however you know you still have to uh, buy textbooks and you still buy textbooks you still have to you know pay library fees and stuff you know and I mean again depending all universities do have you know a bottom line that they have to meet so you know there may come a point when you do have to start paying into like a you know subscription fee or something so you can access those articles and things like that so silly yeah and that's i mean personally that's kind of why i've gotten into environmental education just as as a career because i want to be able to take that that jargon and and process it to the layman in a in a open and engaging way that's yeah. not like super super snooty either yeah and, like and that's the thing is like you never want to come off a certain way it's interesting ellie and i were having this conversation earlier just like with the podcast um there when when we start the podcast that we can always feel there's a lot of nerves in the interviews and some people will even like say that they're like nervous to talk to us or i feel nervous talking to someone like eric hoyt because holy crap, that man has done a lot of work, a lot of really good work. Um, But it's interesting because I think from about half of the people that I've interviewed, I've heard people say, like, I don't know, I think we just get all caught up in our own heads sometimes, and we get intimidated by one another, and everybody's got, like, imposter syndrome of whatever, I'm not good enough to talk to somebody else. But, like, you know, at the end of the day, as Brene Brown says, people are people are people, you know? So... Um, you know, and like one of the things too that I found is I kind of thought throughout this process that I would be met with resistance because I, I also think it's a cultural difference out here. Like that there's, it's just people are a little bit more liberal, but I have not had one person turn me down for an interview. Like, I mean, I've had people not respond, but no one's ever been like outright, no, go away. So, I mean, I like what you're doing too, but I can see, I was nervous coming in because I remember when I was at school, they taught us to be very much like, you know, if you're talking to somebody about your field, if you're meeting somebody to work on their land, you dress so professionally and you have to maintain this pristine, knowledgeable, like image. And so I could definitely see some scientists, depending on where they're from, you know, worried that trying to talk on a platform for a common person would be terrifying that it would almost like oh you're not taking this seriously yeah. because a lot of the a lot of the professors that I worked with um, you know a few of them were fabulously approachable but they were the younger generation and that older generation had this kind of weird mind yeah. yeah and so like even on like the radio and stuff you know they they had to be very put together. You'd hear them practicing for like three weeks. You know, you'd sit there and like they'd be like, "I'm gonna run this through, run this by you," and have like a bunch of you know practice yeah. thing. They'd give yeah. the interviewer questions, and so I think having I think having a nice open medium like this, it would be great to open up science to you know more people, make it more understandable. But I can right. also see from the side of the scientists, like we were told kind of not to do this. No, I agree, and I, and that's kind of why I did this is because I was like, I want to make it more approachable. But like, I definitely have been intimidated talking to certain people not necessarily just in this podcast but in this field in general and when you kind of have this like 
hierarchy or like you know put somebody on a pedestal like not to say that they haven't worked hard or done a lot of good things it's just like there then is some kind of dynamic that gets in the way of like what we need to be addressing at the root which is access to information and scientifically sound choices and you know I agree with you I definitely have also seen that like a different generational gap like um, but also I think I've noticed too because I tried to do the land animal thing for a little bit and I think marine biologists are they're a different breed. Um, a little bit. We're like the this. sailors of science. Literally. <laughs> Definitely like pirates. People yeah. that are like, like, it's just a bunch of goobers. Like, it really is. We're um, all salty. We all have tattoos and weird piercings and funny colored hair. We all yes. swear violently and drink constantly. Yes. Uh, marine biologists Literally. are kind of just the, the sailors of the scientific field. There's all the proper ones. And then there's the marine biologists who come, like, stomping in with their, like, you know, knee-high rubber boots and their flannels. <laughs> and they're like, you will not believe what happened to me today. I got pooped on by a whale. And they're just so excited. Literally. And, yes. That's exactly what it is. Um, so that can also, yeah, definitely add to it too. But I think I've definitely found marine biologists are more approachable. I mean, different. I, I think like whale people are like whale and dolphin people are just like their own breed. I compare them to like the horse people of the, <laughs> the ocean world. Like it's just like that same level of like. I'm laughing because I'm imagining like how the horse girls at my school when I was a kid were really into Lisa Frank and it fits because they, she also had all the ocean like all the dolphins and things and so I'm just like I'm like oh my god now that Lisa Frank is back at it but all of the whale biologists are so excited oh my gosh it's funny so I've been told that my whale tattoo looks like a Lisa Frank painting guys what the f- isn't that crazy that's yeah. nice. One of my coworkers was like, it looks like Lisa Frank, but better. Um, <laughs> it does. If you guys want to look at it, go to, oh God, what's it? Sienna Copa. I don't know. Just put that in Instagram. You'll figure it out. She's got a cool lion as her um, profile picture, or at least at the time it was recorded that she did or does or whatever. Yeah. But then you can see the Lisa Frank whale tattoo. Um, yeah, no, you're right. Look at that. Yeehaw! <laughs> I do feel that that sort of attitude has kind of met like a bottleneck effect almost because with the current United States government administration and the current like governmental attitudes towards science specifically, scientists have had to really step up and say and, and take a stand and, and get get loud and get obnoxious because we're not being heard and we're not getting the funding that we want. Um, I think... I think it was about 25,000 climate scientists recently actually came together and basically wrote a letter to the government saying, what the hell, guys? Like, it's time. Like, we we need to get shit done because we're going to die, basically. And I, I think also, we're... Oh, sorry. No, you're okay. Um, I also, just like one quick thought, think that scientists maybe... As you would say, have like some kind of big, I don't know, what, how did you just word it? Basically, they had to make a big deal about things or a big fuss. Yeah. Like, I think that the, the way that scientists have gone about it, they, you know, while we do keep that sense of professionality or try to, there may be seen as like a lack of that, like, you know, when the whole like Twitter thing with the Park Service was going on and this and that, whatever. Oh, National Park Service. And I think that it, like, it's because that that stems from the fact that these people are rooted in truth and then yeah. like you know what what is actually real and what's not and for some reason like even if something is um false professionalism 
takes precedence to that in our culture, which is so stupid. But that I've yeah. kind of noticed that because, you know, I've, kinda, I've had my belief systems challenged since moving out here, specifically with manners, because <laughs> I'm so upset. It's fine. Um, no, but I'm, like, from the South and the Midwest where manners are really important. And, you know, the people out here on the West Coast are genuinely, like, wholeheartedly some of the nicest people that I've met but there is a total lack of manners and I was really good. I, I interpreted it as rudeness, but here's the thing is like, you know, I definitely have made more genuine personal connections out here quicker and like gotten further in this process of better understanding things because we don't have that weird, like, Oh, like what side does your fork go on situation? You know, like, I don't know. So it's interesting. I mean, I would yes. say I'm also from the South, yes. you know, I would say it's less a lack of manners. I would say it's a different, a different set of manners, but they don't have that artificial etiquette that a lot that's, of, that has been built it. up in like the South. And yes. I remember explaining to someone from here who went to like, I think like in the Midwest or maybe like high South, you know, but somewhere in like generally the mid, middle of the country and um, I had to explain to her because she was like, oh, I met this person. They were like, so forgiving because someone had said about their coworker because there was a coworker being rather horrible, and then she had gone to the different coworker who had helped her, and then she had expressed displeasure at the original horrible coworker, and the second coworker who was helpful had said, "Bless her heart." Oh, no, and no. Uh -oh. Um, my friend from here was like, "I just thought that was such a graceful gesture," no, and I no, lost no, no, my no, no, mind. No, no. I was like, "She hates her with all of her guts," and she's like, oh, "No," and I was no, like, yes. "Absolutely." Yes. There is nothing worse you can say than "Bless her heart." Like oh every statement prefaced with "Bless her heart" or ended with "Bless her heart" is absolute shade. Oh but, yes, um, yes. And then the professionalism thing too. I think that some of it is scientists are only now learning to be loud because for a long time, especially even as kids and stuff. You know, we were the nerdy kids and things, but we were always taught that no one wanted to hear our opinions. Yes. No one wanted to hear about science. No one wanted to hear us natter on about, you know, ion voltages or, you know, uh, how, you know, animal, how the elephants in Africa were going extinct and, you know, we should all support this or something like yeah. a lot. We were always taught that nobody, nobody wanted to really hear us. And it kind of engendered a quieter sort of um, person, a quieter sort of attitude, because, you know, even yeah. now a lot of us are like, you know, people will ask me, like, what was your master's in? And I'm like, oh, you don't want to hear about that. It was ecology, you know, and it's because we don't think anyone wants to hear us buckle down about things. Cause Agreed, in, yeah. and I so. mean, Erica and I both read uh, How to Be a Good Creature by Cy Montgomery, and we had a conversation about how, because Cy Montgomery talks about how she was a young kid and, like, she wanted to be a dog when she was little. Uh, and then I think there was a part where she also wanted to be a, a pony. But um, but her mother just treated her like, like that was, she the was bad. The thing. Like, she, yeah. She, she was crazy, basically. She mm -hmm. came, like, based on what it sounds like from the book, she came from kind of like an uptight, etiquette sort of family, and then was literally disowned because of her career choice, like, to work with animals. And yeah. I've honestly kind of faced that a little bit, too. Like, my family was always like, what are you doing? That's weird. You're never going to make money. You're never going to succeed. You can't do this. Like, what, you're so weird. Why do you want to work with animals? And, like, you know, now that I have nailed out a job that's like legit and like I'm doing something like oh that's cool and I'm like oh you're gonna come back and say that now after like decades worth of saying nothing but yeah it's like you know people get put to the side and ostracized and I, you know I kind of wonder if 
it is other people's fear of like somebody being so passionate, you know? Yeah. I think also it's kind of just a, a fear of almost outside of the norms. You know, there's all these people who wanted to be homemakers. We were very challenging to kind of a set of social expectations yeah. that were around in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of like, Oh yes. And then you meet your high school boyfriend and then you get married or you meet your college boyfriend and then yep. you get married, then you have kids and stuff. And then there's these people who are like 30, like us with tattoos and piercings tromping around the woods. And like, I remember when I was a kid, I loved being in the woods. I loved books yeah. about the woods. I wanted to learn survival. And, um, I remember being on the bus one day, it was like the fourth grade and this kid named Tommy, that was his name. And I'm not going to like say, Oh, let's call him Tommy. No, his name was Tommy. Mm -hmm. And Tommy, if you're out there, you had no chin. And I want you to know that. Um, anyway, so Tommy was giving me so much hell because I'd really enjoyed this field trip we were on in the woods and was like, I knew a bunch of stuff about like woodland survival. And Mm -hmm. he was giving me just, he was absolutely taking the piss like it was horrible and then the whole bus got in on it and again it was because I didn't want to be I wasn't wearing a Spice Girl shirt and you know like you know didn't wasn't reading a magazine about you know the right way to tip your hair or something like that you know and I got so much heat for it from an entire bus in the third grade which is a really bad formative time to take that much shade from someone and again I think it back then everyone kind of thought it was weird how much I worked with animals and spent outside because I think it challenged a lot of what they expected from us as young girls you know yeah absolutely there were a lot of things that I always wanted to do or wanted to participate in like with my boy cousins that I was like told I shouldn't because that's a boy thing to do and it's also interesting I have a cousin who like he's a male cousin but he had a lot of feminine interests and him and I were were so tight like um, we're the same person. His so his dad is my mom's twin, and there was a glitch in the matrix because we were supposed <laughs> to be twins because we're the same person, except for he likes a different kind of science. He's a data science person. He goes to George Mason, and I'm an animal science person. Anyways, but we always got along because he was always told like you can't do this stuff because it's feminine, and I was told like you can't do this stuff because it's masculine, and also like you know it's weird the role that gender plays in science too, especially in this field of science because you know most of my classes in college were female based and then I get out into the world and it's a boys club yeah and there are different expectations of me I remember one time and I I think this man genuinely had the best of intentions saying this to me but he pulled me aside um and I was doing trail maintenance at the time and you know like I'm a really hard worker and he was like you do such a good job like you're I just I'm really impressed that you're sticking this out blah 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 and I'm like why wouldn't I like in my head this is what I'm thinking and like I genuinely I don't think that he meant it that way but like I think that I received that compliment because I'm a woman not for any other reason I would so, agree I would agree yeah. with that um yeah, I absolutely, I mean, my college experience, my degree specifically was in fish and wildlife, ecology and management, and it was 80% boys. Um, I am very hopeful for this next generation. My youngest sister is 13, and, like, she's doing coding. She's out there doing nature journaling. She's taking all these different classes. She's homeschooled. Mm-hmm. But the balance is is actually pretty even between boys and girls now. That is nice. And I love that, I love that this new generation is kind of combating those traditional gender roles and, and letting, letting girls in. I yeah. think one of the best things when I'm on tours is I've gotten a whole lot of people, and it's parents usually, who will ask me to come over and talk with their daughters. You know, they'll have daughters who are somewhere between, like, 12 and 19. And, you know, they'll say that she's always been interested in this kind of stuff. And can I go over and talk to her about how I got here and things? Mm -hmm. And that's always been a really... 
you know, it's really nice. And the kids, the girls, you know, it's not just their parents like, oh, I want her to be a, a ranger. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, she wants to be a biologist. I know it's kind of a, it can be a tricky route. Can you yeah. tell her how you got there? Right. You know, and that's always been a really encouraging thing for me. But I remember when I was in Mississippi, um, they gave me all the inside jobs. Uh, when I was working at a, a natural resource department and um, eventually I started doing the outdoor jobs and they didn't think I could do them and finally I started proving them and I started being the only girl on the, on the, these certain yeah. surveys and I got a text from a guy after I left because I would carry these duffel bags full of these little Allen traps yeah. that are oh, metal and so it's a hundred Allen traps yep. and um, but it's you know it's still it's metal it's heavy and they just stuff them in a duffel bag and this one guy got like God bless his heart um, <laughs> he just handed to me one day and the first day I thought it was going to fall over and I managed to carry it and I did it for like four months and I guess the next per- the tech after me was a dude and he just handed it to him because he would do that to me every time the dude just fell over into a ditch I think that that's just like literally such a representative experience of <laughs> women in male dominated fields of like, you know, they make a big deal. Like I, I'm not, I'm really not crapping on men. I'm really, really not like, but I'm just saying like, this is something that does occur is like, you know, oftentimes I feel like, you know, I've experienced men making a big deal about something and then a woman just does it quietly, you know, and then like, yeah, she just does it. No, yeah. no, no, no need comment. for like a like yeah. a gold star or like yeah. any sort of admiration. Just like does it, even if it's hard, doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Get shit done. Yeah, yeah, because if a guy says it's hard and he does it, he's gonna get like all kinds of slaps in the back. But if a woman says it's hard and does it, so they're gonna think she's complaining. Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, I think you you can totally point out you know, differences between male and female treatment without, without crapping on men. I I don't think that's an issue. I think that we're just pointing out unfairnesses in the, in a society that was, um, you know, started from a patriarchal ideal and, you know, has come, is only now really branching out into a more balanced society. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that for sure. But yeah. Um, there was a study we were going to talk about. Yeah. However, so, we're at 29 minutes, well, so maybe we'll skip it. Okay. Um, Graham on the Graham. You want to do um, Tulsi? Yeah. So, uh, Tasley. Fuck. Tasley Shaw. <laughs> Tulsi is a T, I Dyslexia think. For the win. Tasley Shaw is an amazing photographer and artist and marine naturalist out of Cowtown Bay on Vancouver Island. Um, she she's actually got a really cool Tumblr as well as an Instagram and she she does her own art and she does uh, she takes pictures of whales. Um, let me look her up real quick. Um, and she'll be on this Friday's yes, episode with uh, Gary Sutton. Woo woo! We, we, we highlighted a few weeks ago on Graham we and Graham. Tasley Shaw. There she is. Let's see what she got. Oh, there's, there's, I love that. I love that. So she made this print uh, or this mandala of um, all these cool sea creatures, salmon, uh, sea lions, harbor seals, uh, herring, and killer whales. And it's got a lovely rainbow on it. And it's just super duper pretty. And she made that. Um, she also takes videos, she takes pictures, she makes all her own prints, she's just super duper talented. So, that's who, that's who we're highlighting this Yeet. week, Graham on the Gram. Graham on the Gram. Um, anything else you want to add? I don't know. Um, 
Nope, all I have is one really horrible um, dad joke from my dad. Okay, please, yes, please share. Um, and so he uses this one, and it always gets a groan. But um, sometimes when a student's ask for a dad joke, he just goes, okay, so a seal walks into a club. That's horrible. And then he usually <laughs> walks away because they start groaning. <laughs> That's terrible. How do you feel for a seal? I feel bad for a seal. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Okay, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got a Twitter that we never use, and our discussion forum on reachingextinction.com. Please give us questions! Please, Please give us questions. If you have topics Any you want to hear, or if you want to talk on here, tell us. Tell us if you have jokes, if you don't, Please. if you got pictures of fish, if, yeah. Whatever, nine one whale. Let us know. I'll start. I'll set up a kissing booth if I really have to. Ew! <laughs> See, this is a huge part for Thanksgiving Day. No, we're not. We're so not doing that. We're not talking about that. No. For the whales, stop picking yourself up with the whales, and that's the title. No, something else. At least, at least, herself out for the whales. Good. <laughs> I really. Well, want that's you. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> Literally. Oh my gosh, yeah. mental image. There we go. <laughs> you. Okay, right. uh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>